0: Hey everyone, my name is Alan Smithson, the host of the XR for Business podcast. Today's guest is Paul Reynolds, the CEO of Torch, a really exciting augmented reality platform. It's a mobile augmented reality development and deployment platform for enterprise. Paul has been a software developer and technology consultant since 1997, since before the interwebs. In 2013, after 10 years of creating video games, he joined Magic Leap. Where he was promoted to senior director overseeing content and SDK teams at Magically, Paul recognized the lack of accessible tools for non-game developers that was hindering widespread adoption of immersive and spatial computing technologies. In 2016, Paul moved to Portland, Oregon, where he founded Torch to address this very problem. To learn more about Torch, you can visit torch.app. T o r c h. a p p. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this episode. Torch is such a cool platform and I keep seeing your posts on LinkedIn of putting stuff around your office and stuff. So tell us what is Torch and how did you come up with this crazy idea?
1: The easiest way to think about it is it's a mobile application currently for iOS that lets anyone build interactive spatial scenes. So You create a project and you're building it in the camera of your device, which means you're also walking around the space or moving around the space and you're building up interactive experiences visually without writing any code. We call that the design environment and that's the freely available, anyone can jump into it and, and just start building. What makes it a platform is the capability of taking what you've created in Torch and exporting it and publishing it and integrating it into your existing app or pushing it out to another platform or tool. So what we really wanted to focus on was allowing people to iterate in augmented reality directly within augmented reality as opposed to sitting on a desktop computer and trying to figure out how to work a game editor and get more people able to work productively in 3D. That's really the, the heart of it.
0: That's so cool because if you're sitting at your office and you're like, wow, this AR stuff is hot. It's amazing. You know what? Go learn Unity and coding and figure out how to actually make it. (laughs) Six
1: months later, you're like, oh, look, I made a portal.
0: (laughs) Right. What you guys have built is a simple way to just do it visually.
1: Yeah. So my background was in video games back in the day where everyone was building their own engine. And you really didn't even have time to build a really nice editor on top of that. So when Unity came out, we'll pick on Unity in particular because it's just such a well-known product. When it came out, you know, it kind of was the game engine that most of these game studios I've worked for wanted to build. And that was really unique. They had basically taken what would normally have been millions and millions of internal R&D dollars and turned it into this tool that pretty much anyone can download for free. But what happened over the past few years is it's become kind of the de facto interactive 3D tool. And it was for me as well. I've I've been a Unity user forever. What we learned when we started building a platform at Magic Leap for third-party developers that are not necessarily all looking to build video games, so enterprises and brands, the conversation there was... First, somebody in your team needs to learn Unity <laughs> to even get started, just like you said. and
0: That's like a red flag for these companies because they're like, what the hell's Unity?
1: Right. Yeah.
0: And then they ask their tech teams and they're like, does anybody know Unity? And nobody knows what it is. Then they look it up. They're like, oh, yeah, well, that's for video games.
1: <laughs> right. That's exactly right. And the disconnect has been coming as a veteran game developer. If a young kid comes up to me and says, I want to get into making video games, I'm going to say, download Unity for free and take the tutorials and you'll learn just as much about real professional video game development as anyone else that's actually out there as professional video game developers. So in our world, Unity, and and you know, let's not just big on Unity all the time. You know, there's Unreal, there's these other engines.
0: Improbable.
1: Yeah, for us, they're the easiest way to get in. But then you have to remember um, what I saw firsthand was most of our target market for Torch and most of the people I was dealing with at Magic Leap, they'd never heard of Unity. you got to imagine there's a much bigger world out there besides ours that people don't even know where to get started. I said, look, the world is going to move towards spatial computing where computing is going to be in our world and there's 3D input, there's 3D display, and there's cameras involved. And we've got to come up with more accessible ways to build software and experiences for these platforms that doesn't just come from video game technology. All that said, video game technology certainly plays an important role in all of this. We said, well, how are people building mobile apps today? How are web apps getting built? Businesses are run and new businesses are created on top of these platforms. How do people build software in 2018 at the time? What's their workflow? The workflow is very design oriented and very visual at first. And instead of us building a piece of functional software and then handing it to a designer and say, "Hey, make this look nice and usable, the mobile world in particular has put a lot of investment and flipped it on its head and said, let's make a functional prototype first that everyone can all agree around and say, yeah, this is the thing we want to build. And then you engineer around it that was ultimately how we arrived at the current version of torch where we wanted to fit in with that enterprise workflow and we say well you're already used to this idea in mobile apps in particular of prototype first and design first so that's what we built for ar is Anyone can just jump into this and start putting 2D assets in, video. We help you find 3D models. We have the requisite Sketchfab and Poly integrations. So you can find 3D models. We've got Dropbox integration. So even though anyone can download it and start playing with it and working in it, We've tuned the integrations and the workflow around your standard UX designer or a creative person at an agency or someone that's already building digital products at an enterprise. And we're saying, here's how you can start to test out and share and show some of these early ideas around augmented reality. And as you get more comfortable with what's good and bad in mobile augmented reality in particular will be there for you to help you get that deployed and help you get that integrated and turn it into a real product.
0: So it's really a a prototyping tool then.
1: So it's funny, it it started strictly as a prototyping tool. Anyone could jump in and build something. The only thing you could really get out of it was you could record a video, which is still very important in this screen-based world we're in still to be able to share an AR experience through video. But to add a collaborator or have someone Actually, view what you've built in real time, you had to add them as an editor. We have a Google Doc style real time collaborative editing where you can have as many people as you want in a project, but you're also giving them permission to edit the project. Yeah,
0: that's the last thing you want.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we've had people ask, How many people can I add? Technically, how many collaborators can you handle? And, The answer is always technically way more than you actually want collaborating (laughs) with you anyway. No kidding. We've had upwards of, I think, 50 people in one project before. And the way we do the collaborative stuff, it's not very taxing computationally. So you can have tons and tons of people in there. So after being out for, I would say, two or three months, we started seeing this trend where people were coming to us and saying, Torch is great. It's the first time I've been able to actually feel like I'm creating an AR. I can pull in my assets and these are all professionals and they're very limited on time. And they've said, but how do we get this out of Torch as it go? Keeping in mind, we were pattering ourselves after back to the mobile app world where people may prototype in something like Sketch and Envision and Figma, these functional prototyping tools and Framer. And then once they decide to build the production version, they usually go to code, right? They'll build it in React or whatever. And so originally our thought was, well, we'll get the creative people iterating visually in our prototyping tool, and that will inform the production team. So these people will probably wind up building the stuff in Unity or Spark or Lin Studio, whatever the tools are at the time. But there's this moment of handoff. The interesting thing in hindsight is kind of obvious, which was what I said earlier, a lot of the people that found us don't even know what Unity is.
0: (laughs) So you're like, oh, wait a second. Uh, (laughs) We built this tool for you and uh, yeah, you can use it, but then you got to learn. Yeah. Oh, oops.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And well, and on top of that, the things people are building today are fairly simple. Even the people that knew what Unity was, they're like, wait, you're telling me I've got to rebuild this thing, but it already works in Torch, so why can't I just get it out? And that was always on our longer term roadmap, but we're like, okay, this is obviously the direction we need to support because now we have this very accessible, extremely fast workflow that you can use as just a prototyping pre-visualization environment but we started adding more and more functionality to it that would allow you to build full-blown experiences and so it's just a totally alternative augmented reality workflow that people could use depending upon their use case and the other part of it was is we were like today right and still this is true in the moment right now today Where is all the engagement and, quite frankly, revenue? And where's the rubber really meeting the road, in particular with mobile augmented reality? And the obvious answer to me was social. Snapchat and Facebook and Instagram, they are pumping out a lot of augmented reality content. They're making real revenue from it. They're getting huge engagement. People are building lenses and filters that are getting hundreds of millions and billions of views and brands are trying to figure out how to get into that so we said well those are pretty simple experiences we don't do anything with the face and torch and so we're fully concentrated on the world facing camera and the world-based experiences on those platforms are fairly simple and we said well if we gave people a few more authoring capabilities beyond just prototyping, let them hook up some more interactivity and call APIs and things like that. And then we allow them to publish out to these production platforms. We're kind of filling a need and in a lot of ways, filling a very fragmented ecosystem. Cause the other part of this was we kind of addressed the initial friction for any enterprise that's probably listening to this podcast and they're trying to figure out, How do we even get started? We are trying to be there to say, well, we are literally the fastest and easiest way to get started. And we feel like we've fulfilled that promise pretty well. But then the other part of it is on the outside of the creation is the distribution and deployment. And if you look at that, it's very fragmented. If you want to build for Snapchat, you've got to use Lens Studio. If you want to build for any of the Facebook properties, you've got to use Spark. If you wanna build a fully dedicated AR app, you'll probably use Unity. If you want to embed an AR experience in an existing mobile app, which is a very popular request we hear, you've either got to write to Google scene form or Apple's AR kit, or kind of hack Unity into your mobile app. And so it's all very fragmented by the tool. So we've eliminated the fragmentation at the early prototyping part, but there's still all these crazy problems on the distribution side. In the new year, in 2019, and most recently, we've put a lot of effort in letting you publish and export out. And so the most exciting thing we announced around that was around the time of AWE, Augmented World Expo, we announced Torch 3, which lets you create a public link to your project. Oh, cool. Yeah, it opens in the Torch app as a viewer-only mode, so you're not adding people as collaborators. We don't require the viewer to log in or register, they do have to download the Torch app, but it's a very quick, fast way to say, hey, I built something in AR, I wanna tweet it out, I wanna put it on LinkedIn, or I wanna send it to my client or my internal team. And people can very quickly iterate and view it in real-time interactive 3D. And then the other thing we announced is our ability to export a Torch project into another project. And so our demonstration of that was we were able to generate a Spark AR project from Torch So for Mother's Day, we built a little Mother's Day experience in Torch, but we actually published it through Facebook Cool through the Spark export. So that's where we've evolved beyond just prototyping and kind of a creative tool.
0: That's awesome. You didn't set out with that intention, but you ended up there.
1: We always knew that we would start with designers and grow a platform around that. I think what happened was we mapped to the mobile ecosystem, which is very mature. And the AR ecosystem is still growing and maturing. And if this were a much more established market, we probably could have built a pretty tidy business just being considered like the AR design tool. But we saw these bigger opportunities and filling in these gaps in the ecosystem. So in some ways, it's where we expected to go. But in other ways, we got there a little quicker than we had originally thought we should or would. And it's been very well received.
0: You've been working on this for a bit. How are businesses using this right now?
1: It's kind of across the board. We've got people building Torch projects as internal tests or prototypes, but we have had people, especially now that we just turned on this ability to publish and export. It's technically under early access right now, but we've been giving it out to people. So people are still just getting their heads wrapped around what they can deploy and what they can do with this capability. We've seen people use it for wayfinding. It's a super popular use case for us because if you build content in the environment using a mobile device, building a wayfinding experience where you're actually setting the checkpoints of the wayfinding experience physically in the environment is just so much more intuitive and fast. For example, we built a couple of wayfinding demos for Torch that have always gotten huge response online when we post videos. And it's really funny because the first time I posted a wayfinding demo of how to get from the front door of our office building to the front door of our office.
0: And I saw that. That was cool.
1: It's funny because, you know, I've had people get to our office by saying, I watched the video or I remember the video and it, I just mi- remembered how to get here, which was kind of fun. But the funny thing was the divide in my super savvy AR friends who've been in the business as long as I have, they thought we had scanned the building or done complex measurements because the wayfinding experience in that case actually goes across two floors, two levels of the building and they're like what'd you do? Did you did you scan it in and then bring it into Unity and all this stuff? I was like I literally stood at the front door and I placed the welcome checkpoint and then I walked to the bottom of the stairs and I placed that. So we actually priced that out and we said if you were to build it with a traditional desktop based workflow, you'd have a team of people working on it. And we estimated it would take roughly $100,000 or more, a team of four people, and probably at least a few weeks to get it something workable and viewable. And I built it in about 45 minutes on a lunch break. And probably total cost, including recording the video and buying a couple 3D models, we were into it for just a couple thousand bucks. And so we're talking about radically transforming the cost of building these experiences, So wayfinding is a great example of the cost efficiencies brought in when you actually build AR experiences inside of AR like we do. As far as vertical markets, we're seeing a lot of interest around e-commerce, obviously, and shopping, but also physical retail. People are really interested in bringing a layer of digital experience into the retail environment. Travel and hospitality has been very engaged. Media companies, one of my favorite examples... I will qualify it with, they are not using Torch yet, but ABC News Australia. I don't know if you follow Nathan Basley on Twitter, but he posts these great little infographics in AR that they've built. And so we actually reached out to him and talked to him about his process. And ABC Australia is kind of like the BBC, they're a government funded media company. And two or three years ago, they saw AR as in an interesting way to present information and engage. And they actually built an Unreal Engine-based app to publish news content to go on with their news. It was so expensive and difficult to update the app every time they had a news story. Still, kudos for even getting it out because that's a huge leap. And no telling how much they spent.
0: Oh, my God, in the hundreds of thousands.
1: (laughs) Yeah, at least, right? But they did see engagement. So when Facebook came out with Spark, They said most of our audience is on Facebook and Instagram. So this is a great distribution for us. So we could try this again. And they taught themselves Spark. So now they have a little team of, I think, four people, two or four people that build these little AR experiences that go along with the news story. And Nathan was telling us, and I think I'm quoting this correctly, when they put out a news video on those social channels, it gets around 30,000 or 50,000 views, And when they would put out a world filter or an AR-based experience through the same channels, they were getting hundreds of thousands of views, highly engaged. What's exciting for us is they're getting this value through this one workflow. So what we can offer them as an example is, well, how about everyone in your newsroom can start creating AR experiences to go along with their stories instead of running through this really small team that's taught themselves Spark. And that's what we think, Torch can provide is that accessible workflow. And by the way, if you're already putting together the experience and these assets and you're building this AR thing, why not deploy it everywhere AR can be viewed? Why not push it to not just Facebook, but possibly Snapchat, but also your own mobile app that people have installed? And what about wearables? Giving people this flexibility and freedom of publishing is something that, that we're seeing resonate with like media companies, people in the book industry and mm-hmm. film and television.
0: Yeah, You don't want to make things twice. That's for sure.
1: Not when it's this hard and expensive right? <laughs> <laughs> and experimental for a lot of people.
0: No, you're right. So you've been working on this for a couple of years now. You were at Magic Leap before. What is some of the experiences that you've seen either made on Torch or otherwise that have just kind of blown your mind?
1: I mean, obviously, my early days at Magic Leap was really where I saw incredible things I'd never seen before. That was when I became convinced that spatial computing was coming. Some of that stuff is now public, now that they've released the device and some of the content. I was a part of the org of that company that built the Dr. G game where they're shooting robots.
0: Yeah, it's cool.
1: To see that for the first time, we're talking 2014, was pretty cool. Wow. (laughs) And it's only gotten better, obviously. Most of my most crazy experiences have been around that tech in particular. Just because we used a bunch of different hardware and stuff, the Magic Leap one that just shipped last year is certainly the most consumer-friendly version of the the tech that we would worked with. But there were some demos and things that I saw that were just very unusual where people are, are claiming that they feel temperature changes on their hands when like a little firefly type robot flies up to their finger, or they actually have a sense of weight of an object because of the way the optics were kind of showing stuff in true 3D. So some of that stuff was pretty mind blowing. I'm trying to think of my most recent... I really think because I'm so in the weeds and I always look at the technical execution of stuff, both Apple and their quick look stuff that they're showing where they're actually real time generating shadows, light estimation and reflections. And I don't know if you've seen it, but you can bring in like a shiny toaster and you can wave your hand past the virtual toaster and you can actually see your hand reflecting in it.
0: How are they doing that?
1: They're building an environment map in real time. And so as you're moving around and... So
0: what are they using? The the camera to capture the environment? Oh my God, that's amazing.
1: Yeah, it's really cool. To be fair to everyone else, Apple's very tightly coupled to the hardware. Everything's super optimized and they can actually do these things because they're in control of the hardware. It's a little more difficult to do on a very cross-platform type of context. I really liked the... Head, I want to say Wonderscape, but I think it's Wonderscope. Um, the books.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Those are cool.
1: Yeah, I like to show those. The other part of it is is the experimental side. I follow a lot of the Snapchat lens and the Instagram creator community. Like, There's some folks like Zach Lieberman, Max Weissel. They're all doing really interesting stuff and they don't have a commercial motivation. They're just seeing what weird things they can do with this technology. And I really think that's where we're seeing the most creative stuff come out. Zach Lieberman in particular has an app called weird, is it weird type for AR kit. It's like a toy type of thing where you can walk around and place words and have them react to your movements. And that's always pretty fun to show people.
0: It's really cool. Uh, Have you tried Babel Rabbit?
1: Yeah, that's Patrick's, his baby, right? That's running on top of 6D.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. We're buddies of the 6D guys.
0: Actually, Matt's been a guest on the show.
1: Oh, nice. Yeah. I've known him for a while. We actually announced that we've integrated 6D into Torch as a proof of concept. I'm pretty excited about both occlusion and persistence. I think persistence really changes the game for a lot of people. Once people start to get their head around, again, I go back to our target market. They're so new to this world. I've shown people in real time, I've built a project in Torch on an iPad in front of them. And I've built a little scene on top of a table. And even then, they still don't quite get that they can walk around that thing that I've put out into the world. They think it's like a static or like a 2D thing on top of video. They just... People still have not unlocked the spatial part of their mind with this stuff, which is crazy because we live in a 3D world and we're 3D people. When you do see people get past that initial understanding of what's going on, then their assumption is, is, oh, well, when I build something or place it in the world, it'll just stay there. And somebody else walks in the room, they'll see it. And if I leave the room and come back tomorrow, it'll be here tomorrow. It should be. Yeah, it should. Yeah, they're absolutely right.
0: (laughs) Let's be honest, that's what we expect. And I even expect that. The only uh, technology that's lived up to its promise of like rock-solid persistence has been the HoloLens.
1: Yeah, it is a hard technical problem to solve, but there's so many people working on it, and we're getting closer. Yeah, Microsoft's got a great product around it. Google kind of shocked me a couple years ago when they announced their spatial anchors were cross-platform.
0: Apple seems to be the only one that is playing in their own sandbox and they they don't play well with others. Yeah. Like what is USDZ? Yeah. Come on. Like everybody in the world's moving to GLTF for the people listening, GLTF and USDZ and FBX and they're all 3D model formats and the world hasn't come to a standard, but we were getting close. Everybody was moving towards GLTF and then Apple decided to invent their own. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, we use GLTF at Torch. We have a pretty sophisticated asset processor, so we actually take 70 different file formats, but but on the back end, we always turn them into GLTF, and on our export, we always turn them into GLTF. Actually, I got a funny little side story around that. As a part of this export and publish thing, having the industry agree upon a 3D model format, like you said, is still not fully agreed upon, but it's getting pretty close. If you can handle GLTF, FBX or OBJ, those are pretty well-supported, well-known file formats, but they're not interactive. There's no interaction in that. And Torch is all about building interactive scenes. You know, I put an object in a space and I want to respond once my walks up to it or when they look at it or when they tap it. To be able to do this whole publishing and export thing, we had to come up with our own GLTF equivalent for interactive scenes this portable file format for saying, here's a construction of a scene and here's all the interactions that are connected to it. Apple just announced at WWDC a few weeks ago, um, their reality kit effort and included in that is, I forget the name, it might just be reality files. They call, they, they call them reality files and they actually have interactivity in them and they can be generated from their tool chain and be shared across tools and all this stuff. So I was talking to someone on the ARKit team about it. And I said, oh, that's really cool. You know, we've had to do our own thing and we want to learn more about your file format. And maybe it's going to become a standard. And I was like, have you guys thought about cross-platform? And he, he said, we're already cross-platform. I'm like, oh, wow, that's great. And he said, yeah, we, you can use it across iOS, iPadOS, or MacOS. <laughs> and that was his definition of cross-platform. We think a little bit more in terms of, we want you to be able to build and view content on HoloLens, Magic Leap phones, tablets, looking glass display. Anything that is a reasonable place to view AR, we think your interactions should be able to be distributed on those platforms.
0: Let's put on our business hat here. Mm-hmm. What are some of the business applications that you've envisioned for this? How will people use this?
1: So for us, what we're seeing is people wanting to add AR capabilities to their existing systems. And so as an example, a company that sells a CRM platform for the heavy equipment industry. This is a platform that when sales reps go out and they've got all this literature around the different products and heavy equipment in particular has all these crazy configuration options. This company built a platform with a mobile component that lets them organize all this information, but it's all based on like PDFs and images and spreadsheets. And so they said, we see where AR is super helpful because we could, first of all, show something at scale on location to a customer and say, oh, if you want this backhoe, it's not going to fit in this particular area or to show different configurations in the sales process at scale. Like people can actually walk around and look at this stuff in detail. So for us, what we're offering is their capability to inject an AR capability into their existing platform and say, well, just use Torch to build the different pieces of interactivity in AR and then use our SDK to be able to surface this stuff inside of your own app. We're seeing a lot of people thinking like that, which makes a lot of sense, right? As enthusiasts of the industry, you hope people just go whole hog in and and just say AR is going to disrupt everything. And and you should be thinking about it for not only your marketing, but your internal processes and your retail side and your sales side. But rationally, these are companies that are placing bets and they're dipping their toes into the water. So they're looking at how they can, oh man, I just now thought of this. They're looking at how they can augment their current product line or business or, or whatever it is they do. So we're seeing a lot of that people that are, like I said, the retail side, people that have invested a lot in mobile applications. Mm -hmm. And they have these really interesting AR ideas for their physical locations. Like when a customer comes in, you can have a personalized experience. You can help guide them to the appropriate things that they're looking for. You can make recommendations, all this great engaging stuff. But they don't want to put out the AR app that somebody has to download and install, and it's totally separate from their primary app that already has millions of installs. In that way, that works very similar to the CRM example where they just say, we want an AR capability in our app that we can publish content into. And we want more and more of our team to be able to create the content and publish it in. So retail has been a big one. And e-commerce, you know, obviously pre-visualization of a product before you buy it. And making that not just a model that you stick in your room and can't only scale and rotate it, but it actually tells you about itself and you can actually buy it in the moment. This has always been the difficult question for me to answer as far as what is the addressable market for AR? It's everything.
0: Yeah, it really
1: is. The easier thing for me to say is, you mentioned in my bio, you know, I kind of got into software in the very early days of the web. In those early days, people were saying, what do we even need a website for? (laughs) <laughs> yep. And then there's the progression of, well, we should have a website, but we'll just stick our company's logo on it in an about us page. And then over time, it became, wait a minute, real value is happening. Real audience exists on this platform. Not only do we have to have a website, but we've got to have some form of transaction happening there. We could run our support through it. We could run our business through it. And then eventually everything matures to the point where people say, well, we're going to build a business entirely on top of this. We aren't this existing business trying to figure out how to incorporate the web into it.
0: The web is our business.
1: Right. And then the same exact thing happened with mobile. You have people that said, why do we need a mobile app?
0: That is like, honestly, the people that are asking these questions, if you're listening and you're asking, why do we need an AR app? Think about what Paul's saying here. Why do you need a website? Why do you need a mobile app? These are questions that seem absolutely ridiculous to ask now because the world is on web and a larger portion of the world is now on mobile. If Google is all in on AR, Apple's all in, Amazon, Facebook, Walmart, like every major company in the world gets it. So it's coming.
1: Yeah, yeah, (laughs) without a doubt. When? And now that's the trillion dollar question, but...
0: Well, you know what? You just said the magic number, trillion dollars. And I'm going to unpack this quick because I actually predicted that XR will create a trillion dollars in value in five years. Yeah. The industry itself, just hardware and software is going to create about uh, between 400 and 500 billion, right? Yeah. That's based on all the different studies that are coming out. So, you know, just the sales. And if you add it up, so this year we'll do probably 20 billion. Last year it was 10 billion. Next year it'll be 40. It compounds. So by 2021, they're anticipating a hundred billion dollars a year. So forecast out to 2025, we're looking at, call it half a billion created, right? And, And that's just half a billion dollars. That's not factoring in $1 of value created for engineers, doctors, hospitals, designers, retailers, training, education, if you factor in the value created with this technology, it's in the multi-trillions.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're standing on the shoulders of the web and mobile, and we're introducing totally new forms of interaction that we've only begun to understand.
0: <laughs> I know. It feels like I've been doing it forever, but <laughs> only the beginning.
1: Yeah. No, it is. It's, it's still early days. Can I retire yet, Paul? <laughs> No, not yet. You got to, just like me, we got to hang in there a little bit longer.
0: I think we got to grunt it out. So what is your timeline prediction on this then? When are we going to see AR and and, in its different forms take off?
1: I hesitate to do like an actual year, but what I have observed is that last year when we were out in the market, most of the enterprises we were talking to had experimental and proof of concept type budgets, you know, things that were, in the emerging tech group or some kind of R&D fund. They hired a kid at a high school to work on Unity. Yeah, this year, it's very much very serious conversations around. It's still early. Most still haven't figured out how it fits in with their business. We spend a lot of our time educating, and as you do as well. But we are seeing serious budget and considerations around This is going to become a part of our business. And so I do see that progression I talked about where it's, eh, this is kind of weird and experimental. Maybe we'll do it just to be kind of stand out from the crowd to, "Uh uh-oh, it feels like we really should be on top of this early because we've got the extra money for it and time, it seems like it's coming. And then next year, I think there'll be a whole lot of people jumping on that bandwagon. I still think we're probably... I would say two to three years out from it being as vibrant as those web 1.0 days. It's interesting because my prediction,
0: and I don't say this in public, and I guess this is going to be the first time I'm saying, (laughs) my prediction is 24 to 36 months, we're going to see massive growth, like exponential growth. We're going from 10 billion last year, 20 this year, 40, 60, 100. So we'll be in a $100 billion market, which is huge. But we're also going to be seeing a roll-up of the entire ecosystem. So I think there's going to be big companies that realize, oh my God, we need an in-house team for this. And Mm -hmm. rather than try to scrounge it together, they're just going to start acquiring studios. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of interesting because this technology is not just about the platforms like Torch, but it's also about the content creators. And a lot of investment has gone into platforms and products, but they've neglected the fact that these studios are really, really vital. So that's why we actually started XR Ignite to bring the industry together and create a a community hub and investment arm and accelerator to take these smaller companies that have great promise and combine them with corporate clients and bring them to that point where maybe they are acquired, maybe they are just selling. It, It doesn't matter, but we need to bring them together. And I think over the next three years, we're going to see an absolute explosion of growth in this industry.
1: Yeah, exactly right. I think you're going to see people that already have a kind of intuitive understanding about how to execute ideas in this new medium. They're going to be very valuable people. And there's going to be people, well, like me, I was a graphic designer at a daily newspaper building ads. And I heard our executive staff of the newspaper start to think about, hey, maybe we need a website. I've been online for a few years at this point, and I knew I could do enough HTML to help them out. And not only did they let me help plan, the I was like a 23-year-old kid helping these executives plan their online department. But I also got the job as manager once it got set up.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we're seeing that all over the place. Put it this way, one of the kids that we sponsored when he was 13, he's 16 now, works for, I think he works for Google now. He, He worked for Microsoft last year.
1: Uh, The other thing that excites me about it is I think we should really rethink how software gets built. AI plays a role in this as well, but that's one of the reasons why I was pretty proud that we introduced a totally different workflow into AR because we're not reusing tools from other industries. We've built something from scratch. I think it'll be interesting. I don't know if coding... It may not be coding anymore, right? It might be application creation, experience creation.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and I do a talk called the world in 2039. And part of it is what are the jobs of the future? What happens when all of a sudden our education system catches on to coding and says, oh, we got to teach everybody coding and they, which they're doing now. They're, you know, starting to teach code, which is great, but what happens when code starts to code itself?
1: Right. Yeah.
0: We could go down that rabbit hole for days. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) Paul, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join me on this podcast. And I'm really looking forward to digging into Torch and seeing what we can build.
1: Thank you for having me. And I also wanted to say you're a prolific poster on LinkedIn. You're a huge advocate for our industry. And I know that's not easy to do. And thank you for all the time you put into that.
0: I appreciate it. It, It's a labor of love for sure. And My mission in life is to inspire and educate future leaders to think and act in a socially, economically, and environmentally sustainable way. So I believe that this technology is the way we're going to educate in the future. And I'm doubling down on our future and uh, the kids who will create it. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Paul, and thank you everyone for listening. This has been the XR for Business podcast with your host, Alan Smithson. This podcast was another amazing example of how XR technologies are revolutionizing business across every industry. To learn more about Torch and Paul's company, you can visit torch.app. Again, thanks very much, Paul. Thank you. Being an influencer on LinkedIn in the XR field uh, really has opened up an opportunity for us to not only understand what corporations are looking for in virtual augmented mixed reality and artificial intelligence, but also from the aspect of the startups, studios, developers, and enthusiasts out there and what they need. So what we decided to do after getting hundreds and hundreds of messages is to open up XR Ignite to the entire XR community of startups, studios, individuals, passionate people, and really to build a new community that brings together everybody who's passionate about this technology for a low cost and allow them to contribute, to learn, and to get better across the whole industry. That is really the reason why we started XR Ignite, to hyper-accelerate the XR for business industry, business and education. And one of the things that we just keep noticing is that there's so many resources out there. There's the VRAR Association, which we're partners with. There are reports coming out daily, but there's no one source where people can come together and start just having conversations around how to get better in this industry. And that's why we started XR Ignite. I would encourage anybody who's listening to this podcast, if you're in the corporate side, if you're a startup, if you're an individual, if you're an enthusiast, sign up today at xrignite.com, and you'll be getting access to new reports, investor lists, media lists, exclusive content, interviews with our mentors. We have over 56 mentors. And if you're a startup and you pay an annual fee, you'll actually have the opportunity to book a one-on-one one hour call with one of the mentors. What we're doing with that is we're actually recording those sessions, we're transcribing them, taking out any personal information, and we're making those transcripts available to all members. So I think XR Ignite is gonna drive a lot of value for anybody in this industry who's looking to up their game and also for corporates who want a real insight as to what technology is coming out. So I would encourage everybody to sign up at xrignite.com, and I really look forward to driving value executing on our mission to hyper accelerate XR for business and education.